I came out a raving nutter. I came out antisocial, you know, fighting, hitting people, a rebel, hated school, hated teachers, hated policemen, hated everybody. And in a very short space of time, I was in front of the juvenile court. I say help people when they need it, but help them to not need it. And that's a hand up, not a hand up. Amazing. (laughs) You're boring the arse on me. Okay, Um, let's start. Where, so whereabouts in Ireland did your family come from? um, My family come from Cork, from the county of Cork in a place called Mallow. Mallow. My mother, I knew exactly where my mother came from and I knew how she arrived in England at the age of 18 to be a, hopefully to be a nurse at the London Hospital. But when she arrived, she'd found out that um, they were looking for cleaners. And because she was an Irish girl with no uh, education worth talking about, uh, they offered her a cleaning job. So she told them to get stuffed and then went to live with her sister, who had come over a few years before on the Portobello, just off the Portobello Road in Notting Hill which was the biggest slum in London. It was terrible. It was, you know, it had the highest infant mortality rate than anywhere else in the UK. What year was this? This is 1939. So the war was going to be starting in a matter of months and she arrived and uh, to live in a, to sofa surf with her her sister. uh, And she got a job on the Portobello Road in a uh, pub as a barmaid, uh, which she loved because she loved the company of men. That was one of the reasons why she left Ireland. Uh, and she liked smoking and she liked drinking. So she was uh, a young lass, a long, young Colleen. Um, so I knew all about that, but it was only when I was 69, I found out by doing the DNA thing, that in fact, the man who brought me up, who was an English guy, who was a combination of a demon and a saint, uh, was in fact not my father. And that my father was um, um, a farmhand from Cork, from Mallow. And his name was Cronin. Uh, so I'm not a bird, I'm really John Anthony Joseph Cronin. If I'd, but you know, you can't, at 69, you can't go around changing your name, can you? <laughs> so where were you conceived? I was conceived probably in some cow shed in, uh, in Ireland, in Cork. Uh, and um, it's so interesting that most people say, that must have been quite a shock. And it wasn't a shock for me. I mean, I took it in my stride and uh, I, I met my first cousin who helped us establish uh, that it was her mother's brother who uh, was my father. Um, And apparently he was very young. I mean, my mother was 26 and he was probably 18 or 19. Oh, so it happened when she was back visiting Ireland? Oh, yes. The war was just about to end. She went back and I was conceived. And it was so strange because there were so many lies told to cover up that. My mother, I don't think my, the man who thought I was, who was my father... I don't think he knew anything about it because he would have he would have hit the roof. Uh, but there was all these things. Uh, my mother would say, "Oh, or Tony, 
because I was Tony Bird before I was John Bird. Oh, Tony Bird. She said, ah, yes, you were, you were premature. And of course, I wasn't premature. I was, they just had to make it look as though I was premature. I mean, I wasn't a big baby. I was only four and a half pounds, but a lot of people born in the slums and the working class life in that time, four, five, six pounds was quite normal. So what was your relationship like with this man who you grew up believing was your father? For the first five years, it was brilliant because I was the baby and I had lots of blonde hair and I had green eyes and I looked angelic. I mean, I was described as, you'll never believe it now if you saw me now, that I was once a little angel and think all you angels out there, what will happen in 50, 60 years time? You'll look like a sack of potatoes. So that's something to look forward to. Uh, no, so I got on with him. I loved him. I loved him to death. And then when I was five, and unfortunately, unfortunately, my mother got pregnant again. So that was the fourth child. There was two ahead of me. Then there was me. Well, there was a miscarriage in between, a stillbirth in between. Then there was me. Then there was, and then my father, or the man I thought was my father, transferred all of his energy, loving energy, towards the new baby. And I, I couldn't believe it. I was one day, you know, persona grata, and the next day I was persona non grata. So it was it was a great sharp learning curve at the age of five. Um, and at five, that was when you also became homeless. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you see, if you if you look at the pattern, I mean, it's very interesting that uh, immigrants, uh, and even though my father or the man, you know. Alfred Bird, the, the husband of my what mother, uh, he wasn't an immigrant. He was a working class local boy, slum, Cockney type boy, lived in the slums, brought up in the slums. He had six brothers and one sister. His father died in the 1920s from too much drink. He was a dipsomaniac, as they called them in that day, in those days. And he... Uh, he was just a hard-working local boy, ill-educated, heavy drinker and a fighter. He would get thrown out of pubs and then he'd go in and have another fight. So he was a very rough What diamond. was his job? His job was working on the building sites. He was a milkman for a while, uh, but I don't think it suited him uh, because it wasn't physical enough. He, he really was. Very, and he was, a, a, he was an incredibly intelligent man without this education, because he couldn't mend anything. He couldn't drive a car, but he could fix it. He couldn't drive a bus, but he could fix it. He could fix a tram, he could put in windows, he could do plastering, he could do plumbing, he could do electricity. All of these things he learned himself. And it was a great tragedy that he, he never, I mean, he had six boys and he was always at the bottom of the pile and he never earned enough money and my mother, who was, uh, if you gave her a pound, it would burn a hole in her pocket. It had to be. So we we had this very uneven life where you had three days of plenty and then four days of neglect because there was no food. What would she spend it on? Cigarettes, uh, drink, uh, cakes, you know, uh, a leg of lamb or a leg of pork on a, on a weekend or something. And then we would descend into the 
uh, you know, the Monday to Thursday when he got paid again, when we would be eating very little. I mean, on a Tuesday and a Wednesday in particular, I remember our meal nearly always were what was called goody. This was an evening meal and goody was where you take a slice of bread and you break it up and you put it in a cup and then you put tea on it and then you put milk in it and then you put sugar on it. And that was our meal. We loved it. It was called goody. So we had that on a Tuesday and a Wednesday and then a Thursday it got paid. So then we'd probably have fish and chips or something like that or something, you know, really, you know, kicking over the traces. It was a very economically very uneven period of time and and um, I was astonished. My, my mother would do anything for a cigarette uh, because she would, you know, if she had her way, she'd have smoked 60 a day. Um, and I used to uh, take some of her cigarettes when she had a lot and give them one a time or two at a time to her on a Wednesday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday when she had none. And I thought that was a real sign of how clever I was. I also did something which was, I think, one of the cleverest inventions ever made by anybody. When I was six years of age, when we used to have this goodie, when you had the tea poured over the bread, it, let, it had teas, tea leaves in it. So I said to my dad one day, I said, Dad, uh, you know, if you had a bit of metal on the top of the cup with holes in it, you could pour it in and then the leaves wouldn't go in. And he said to me, you silly bastard. He said, you've just fucking invented the tea strainer. <laughs> and I said, he said, go and tell your mum that. And she said, oh, be Jesus. He said, she said, you'll be inventing the aeroplane next. <laughs> Which obviously was already running. And then I said, but are they expensive? tea strainers and they said no I said well why haven't we got one and my dad said because we're piss poor so we were poor defined as poor and self-defining as poor mm-hmm. so we were at the bottom we were we had nothing and so what happened when you were five you were kicked out of the place well, you're living in yeah we we lived in the we lived in these two rooms uh in this slum house and we shared a toilet with eight other families. So if you wanted to have a crap, you had to book it two days in advance. I'm not joking. It was, there was a whole line of people. And, and you didn't have toilet paper, nothing nice and all that. You had, you, you'd, you'd cut up bits of the newspaper and you'd take it with you. So you'd take four or five sheets of these little things. And of course, uh, in those days, the, the print on the newspapers used to get on your bum. So it wasn't a particularly particularly clean period of time. And everywhere smelt of shit and piss. Wherever you went in the house, it was urine and feces. And, and there was... and there Because uh, a lot of people were wetting their beds, including my brothers. I didn't. And everywhere there would be hanging uh, sheets that you didn't wash, you just dried them out. And so everything was, you, you know, you were rank. This was working class life after the Second World War. And it was a real, uh, but, but so here we were, my parents were not very grown up, you know, they didn't really know how to finance themselves. They didn't know how to husband their money. And I often hear of really clever 
very, very poor people who would have, say, six jars, milk, you know, kind of jam jars, and they'd have money for each day of the week and all that stuff. None of that with my family. Uh, so there was no, uh, there was no um, a sense of getting through the week. You stumbled through the week. And one of the big tragedies of my family, early family, was that they were always hiding from the rent man. And then eventually, when I was five, I was at, I used to go to a little Catholic school around the corner, so called St Michael's of the Angels, and I came back and I saw my father uh, beating up some bailiffs, and the police came along and beat him up, and and they were all rolling around on the floor, and all our worldly goods were out on the streets. So we were saved by the fact that just round the corner, in this Notting Hill slum was um a uh was my grandmother's my father's mother who had a cottage where she'd brought up her seven children above a woodcutter's and she didn't have a kitchen she had a toilet that was one thing and we were put in a a void in the roof and we lived there for a year and we all there was then there was five there was four children Four children, mum and dad, and me and my two brothers slept in in the same bed as my mum and dad. And then my youngest brother, who was only a year old, was in a drawer on the floor. And it really, and we became very ill. I got scarlet fever, I almost died. And um, then after a year, we um, the council gave us a council flat, which was a, ridiculous. Because what it was, was a condemned, part condemned house that they'd taken over after the Second World War because nobody had claimed it. So Because there was lots of houses in London, Bayswater and Notting Hill, uh, that people didn't come back to. And so there was void property all over the place. Because they died in the war. They died in the war or they just said, we've had enough. And the value of property was nothing. I mean, you could buy a, a flat for 50 pounds you know and you charge rent of 10 shillings a month and in two years you'd have got your 50 pounds back so there was all this um uh so we got a council flat it wasn't a flat it was a park condemned garden flat uh in uh, bayswater which was next to next to uh, notting hill and that's where um uh, we lived for another year and then the family fell to pieces because uh, we didn't pay the rent again and all that stuff. And we ended up in a Catholic orphanage. And where were your parents? They lived in a room um, and uh, they had another child. So that was five. Uh, and then after two or three years, I think it was maybe two years, we were rehoused in a block of council flats in Fulham, where Fulham meets Chelsea, on the King's Road near the King's New King's Road. So we got a flat uh, in I think fifty five, fifty six, and um, so we moved from this orphanage, which was run by nuns, which and I went in. I think I was probably one of the sweetest, most gentle children you'd ever met. I was a lover of old ladies. I couldn't stop 
and hit, I'd stop and listen to stories and participate. And I was looked upon, I'm not joking, very angelically. And then, uh, excuse me, I'm, my throat's a bit dry. Go for it. Mm. It's hot here today. Um, so anyway, um, so I went in to this orphanage as as a very, well, I'd say a quite basically sound sort of ch- chap, little seven-year-old. I came out a raving nutter. I came out antisocial, you know, fighting, hitting people, a rebel, hated school, hated teachers, hated policemen, hated everybody. And in a very short space of time, I was in front of the juvenile court and I was put on probation for shoplifting, even though I wasn't the shoplifter, it was the people I was with. And then it was housebreaking and then it was stealing bikes and all that. And I I gradually, over the next five years, moved from being this angelic person to almost being a demon and, you know, daubing swastikas on walls and starting fires and... Fighting, yes, I was always being, I was banned from school because I would hit people. If they if they hit me, I'd hit them back or hit them with a the blunt instrument. And then I was sent to the one of the teachers to be caned and I took the cane off him and caned him. And that was my, the end of my school life when I was 14. So what do you think happened during those years in the orphanage? I really missed my mother and father. Uh, particularly miss my mother and uh when you the nuns the sisters of charity i mean their job was to look after probably 150 really disturbed children um and uh you can't you can't throw love around you've got to everything's got to be systematized it's, you know you're in the army so to speak you got up at 6 30 and all that, they were the wet the beds, they were the people who shat their beds, they had to handle all that, they had to handle the people who were crying in the night and screaming for their parents who they'd either lost or had abandoned them. There was a particular girl, a lovely girl called Joanna, and her and I were an item, even though we were only seven. And I said to her, what are you doing in here? And she says, well... My dad killed my mum and then the police killed my dad. So it was trauma. (laughs) Whether that story was true or not, he was a child who was incredibly traumatic. And did you feel like you'd been abandoned by your parents? Oh, I did. And the problem was my, my, I was in this orphanage and my, there was another child. So there was five, five of us then. The youngest was in an orphanage by himself. And then there was me and my two older brothers and my younger brother. My younger brother was in a nursery, so he was looked after in a very nice, sweet sort of way. And there was me, who was seven, and then there was an, an eight-year-old and a nine... No, a ten-year-old and a nine-year-old, my older ones. And they were immediately scooped up by the nuns and given jobs to do. And they just ran around and did everything. And they would beat me up because I would t- tell the nuns they were a p- bunch of fucking scumbags and all that stuff. And they'd hit me and, and I ran away. And So I, I, I was not loved by my two brothers 
who were workers, you know, they were worker bees, and I was a wasp, you know, I was a pain in the ass. So I had a terrible time there, and I hated it, and I came out. And I think I became quite a ferociously disturbed child. Um, and that's why I was always getting into trouble. Uh, but there were still niceties to me. I mean, I wasn't a bully. I would protect people who were weaker than me, and I would, uh, I would help old ladies. I was passionate about old ladies because they all looked, you know, like very large children because they were lost. Um, so I had a kind of very niceness, and also I was a devout Catholic. So I went to church, believed in Jesus, and thought Jesus was the bee's knees. He was there. He was the only person who made sense to me. I was surrounded. And I think people don't realise how bad the old days were, especially if you were working class. If you were middle class, you might have got away with. It was, everywhere was homophobic, racist animals, anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic. You know, we were, the, we were treated because we were Catholic and there weren't many black people around. We were treated like how they later treated the black people. And it was absolutely, it was a shithole. It was a terrible, Britain after the Second World War, in my opinion, was psychotic. It was, and it was a place for creating paranoia and all that. Now, I don't, you could, you might say the same about Germany after the war or Russia or France, I don't know, or in the United States or even, uh, you know, South Africa or something like that. But all I know, was I lived through it and the more I reflect on it there were no good old days there was uh, there was just a, almost a psychotic illness the the government was ill they were doing things you know like they were they were pretending that they were still the powerful in um, empire they were so they were still trying to stop the African countries becoming independent you know they were they were t calling everybody terrorists and what people who were looking for self-determination mm. and there was all that illusion and policemen would hit you if you looked at them in the wrong way yeah because you t i heard you talk about being that first crime you were taken to court as a 10 year old but you hadn't actually shoplifted no i was with a gang of shoplifters and how did you make that? Well, they were in my school. Uh, when I say a gang, there was four of us. Um, and I I went along with them because I'd come out of orphanage. And it was a bit like what in the Victorian times, if you were in a workhouse, they'd call you worky or something like that. Oh, he's in the workhouse. He's not got a mum and dad. So I felt very alienated from my class of people. Uh, and there were there was no and the only boys that were interested in me were the dishonest ones, and I remember the boys Coleman and Hayes, in particular, who were going around shoplifting and stealing things. There was a priest that died, who used to be the school priest, because our school was next to the church, you know. So, so and he died, and they collected loads of money for his flowers. And they kept the money in our in a tin in our classroom, and of course 
my mates spotted that and uh, we would take money out of it every day and get kind of chewing gum cigarettes and oh, chocolates and stuff like that and yo-yos and, you know, uh, chewing gum. Anyway, and the day that I wasn't, I wasn't there and they got nicked, they got caught. <laughs> uh, and uh, so they were doing those kind of things. I wasn't stealing the money. I was making sure that I was the watchman standing on the stairs and if anybody comes, come in, and then, anyway. But they were nabbed. And then we got, then one of them went shoplifting and I was standing outside, I wasn't involved. And I got nicked. So I was, I was culpable. You know, I was heading for trouble. And it was all just for fun, breaking the rules. Well, no, no, I mean, I didn't even know about the rules. I mean, it, it was to get chewing gum and get chocolate and get, you know, sweets and and get bottles of Coca-Cola. And I mean, it was self, self, uh, self-advantage because here we were living in this world where the parents, I mean, the parents didn't give you anything. You know, they you got a bit of grub, but you didn't get pocket money. That, I mean, you might get thrums, but you, that was it. And then, so what was it like going into a boy's prison for the first time? Well, the first place I went was when I was 13, and they don't have boys' prisons because it's it because before you get to 17, you're considered to be a minor, and they put you in institutions which are prisons, but they call them things like youth offenders, things like that. So I went into this place, which was a big cage in Hammersmith, and... Uh, um, what what it was was that um, you um, you you went into this cage and you stayed there for two or three weeks and they assessed you in this cage you know so um, and they did you know they did things like psychological tests and all that so I went in for the three weeks and immediately I started having fights with other people because they were all these n- nasty boys from all over London. And um, and I realised, you know, that uh, this was, a, I mean, it was almost like a kind of university of crime because everybody was doing wrong and all that. And there were bullies and all that stuff. So I had to immediately try and fight my corner. And the best way of doing it was to pick on somebody who was bigger than you and say, I'll, we'll go in the ring because we used to have boxing on, on a Saturday niggle matches they call them and this big guy called Coleman as well not the same Coleman uh, he he kind of kicked me on one occasion and I said we'll go in the ring so So we went in the ring and I beat the shit out of him even though he was 15 and he was tall and the reason for that I was more frightened than he was I just tore into him and hurt him and he gave me so much respect after that and I won the kudos of these all these scumbags like me. So you have to do those kind of things. Uh, you had to try and pretend you were tougher than everybody and you had to pretend you were brave, which was quite difficult on occasions when you're dealing with people who are bigger and stronger than you because I was 13 and there were people there up to the age of 17. Um... And then there was the kind of sexual, you know, when you were in your 
uh, in your dormitory, there was those people who would want to try and do things to you at night, you know. Uh, so there was quite a bit of um, what they call noncing. What other other boys or the people? Yeah, other boys, the... yeah. It was other boys. There was no girls around, and it was other. But boys. not the prison guards, or whatever. Not the no, people no, they. I well, I never had any experience, but every now and then you'd have to kind of hit somebody who was trying to get into bed with you or something. Or, uh, so, and that was in quite a number of institutions I, I was in. But it wasn't... I mean, I think uh, the way it's going now, I think with prisons and all that, I think it, it's much more institutionalised. I mean, ours was, I wouldn't say innocent, but it was... So you, you had so you had to... So you were screwing up. You had to pretend you were better than you were to the screws, to the officers, so that you'd get in for this assessment because this was a three-week assessment to go back to court and then the court would say all right back on probation and you were trying to win and at the same time you're having to put up with incredibly disturbed people I mean really disturbed people uh, and a lot of them were people like me who'd been in local authority care or the care of the church or something like that and, and and they were all they were all from poverty. No, no one had any money. And what was your relationship with your family like at that point? Oh, it was a bit rough because my mother's always said there was two things. She said you are going to be hung because she'd read somewhere that uh, um, uh, murderers always started off doing silly little things like a bit of shoplifting or housebreaking or stealing cars. And then they got worse and worse and worse and worse. So she was uh, determined to tell me on every occasion and tell other people, oh, my feckin' boy, Tony Burrard is going to be, he'll be hung. And, and I won't go to the prison. Because what they do is when they hang you, at eight o'clock in the morning, at nine o'clock, they'd put a notice on the door of the prison. And my mother said she wouldn't be out there to read the notice to say that, John Anthony Bird had left this mortal coil and was now somewhere else. Uh, and also the other thing, she said I would be the death of her because she had five children and not one of them got into trouble except for me. So I was the sixth, I was the pain in the rear. And I know, I mean, looking back, I was, uh, I was made mad by a grown-up world by an adult world, by a world of class and hatred, uh, greed and small-mindedness. Uh, and that's one of the things that drives me on. That's why, you know, 60 years later, I'm in the House of Lords trying to dismantle poverty and not simply make the poor a bit more comfortable, which I think is one of the major preoccupations of virtually every do-gooder in the world. They are determined to make the poor slightly better off. And I want to get people out of poverty. I want to get them out of crime. I want to get them out of self-harming, drunkenness and all that stuff. And that means destroying poverty. And so how did you get yourself out of those cycles? Like what kind of happened in the next five years from... Well, I was blessed. I mean, my brothers... 
uh, grew up to be uh, unskilled or semi-skilled workers. In those days, I mean, I was in an institution when I was 16, 15, 16, uh, that if you, uh, it cost, I think it was two or three times more than if you, if they sent me to Eden or Harrow. So the government worked on the, it's a bit like insurance, you know, what, what is, you pay in five pounds a month and, you know, you have an accident in two years time and then they spend thousands on you. And as long as there's not too many people needing it, then that's the insurance. So the government works on the premise. We spend nothing on the working classes and their education and their socialization and their social improvement. We spend nothing on socializing them out of poverty and creating social literacy. We spend absolutely nothing, or relatively speaking. And then some knobhead like me comes along and says, fuck you, and does knobby, knobby things, you know, steal stuff and all that stuff. Uh, there was a friend of mine, they spent a fortune on him because, uh, and he went in for many, many years and he he was the weirdest person, the weirdest thief, because he'd thieve anything. So he ended up ending up in a highly expensive psychiatric place because he he was coming along one day with me and he saw in a in a garden two walls away, he saw a load of women's underwear. So he leapt over the fence, got stole all the women's underwear. And just as he was doing it, the man came out of the house to stop him. And the man was a big guy, and my mate just struck him down. So violated somebody, stole all the guy's wife's underwear or whatever, and then was seen as a sex offender and was sent, when he was caught, to a, to a, a place that cost, I don't know, thousands of pounds a month or a week. So they would do that to the people who kicked over the traces. I wasn't in that highly expensive psychiatric world. I was more down in the in the reformatory. But you had so they'd put that money into making sure that as best as possible that you would come out a person and you wouldn't rob old ladies of their handbags, not that I ever did, or you wouldn't do all the other things that people did. You'd stop stealing cars, you'd stop embezzlement or whatever were your thing. Uh, so it's a very clever system. But what it meant was that every time I got nicked, I got taught something. So I was in a boy's prison, and it was a boy's prison, when I was 16 because I'd run away from a, uh, from a uh, detention, from a, a, a reformatory. Uh, and I'd run away, and me and my mate, who I'd run away with, we stole a car and smashed it up at... 87 miles an hour, not a scratch on us. Uh, he got away and I got caught and I ended up in the boys' prison. And within a matter of weeks, my reading had changed enormously because because of the screw who... I was in my cell, my, my own cell, and he came in and he said, do you want a book, boy? And I went, um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, you can't read, can you? I said, well, I can read some words, you know. I was dyslexic, and dyslexia is where you can read the big words like New York, Constantinople, and, you know, so, uh, you know, kind of 
Saint-Tropez or something like that. Bridget Bardot. You could, rem- you could read these words, but you wouldn't know what was going on. And you could read the sentence sometimes, and I could. And I'd still think, what the fuck's going on here? And this screw gave me a book and gave me a pencil, and he said, underline all the words that... It's the first time I could tell anybody that I couldn't read them right. My mates didn't know, my parents didn't know, my teachers didn't know. Because you were ashamed of that? Yeah, I was ashamed of being what later on would be called dyslexic. And over these matter of weeks, he just said, oh, it's all these silly little words like where, then, therefore, and all that. So he he took time off. <laughs> when he was supposed to be going home, he'd come to my cell and he'd go through these words. Oh, well, you know, and he'd show me. I mean, he was a natural teacher and an incredibly committed member of the prison service. Not, they're, they're not all scumbags, as you know, you'd think they were, or their reputation is. And uh, after, I think it was only two or three weeks, I went back and I had the confidence to read. And though I wasn't finished, I kind of, so I started reading books. I went back also to this institution, and this was where, I, why I'm here now in my own house in the House of Lords is because I was transformed by the fact that uh, when they asked me what I wanted to do with my spare time when I was at this reformatory this young offenders place I said I want to draw and paint so I said okay they said okay and they said alright then we'll get you a teacher and we'll give you the paints and all that stuff they put me in for competitions. I won prizes. I dedicated myself so much to being a painter. I read about painting. I read about art. So my education was about painting and drawing. And I was so good that I built this enormous portfolio. And when I left, just short of my 18th birthday, I... Uh, after a few months, I wa- walked into Chelsea's School of Art, which was one of the most important art schools in in Britain, or in London at least, and they gave me a place, because they looked at the stuff and they thought, this guy's a genius. I mean, I was a genius. I really, I swear on my life. I also suffer from delusions of grandeur. <laughs> and it's that's interesting, I was coming out of I was coming out of Pentonville prison once, having insulted about 200 young men who were locked up there, said, you're assholes, you know, you got caught. I didn't get caught, you know, I was caught, I got, what are you doing? And I had them hysterical with laughter because I just took, I didn't do the white middle class, oh yes, you poor chaps, you know, that kind of stuff. I just cracked jokes and told them what they were missing. I said the other day I went out for a lovely pint of beer and I had a few cigarettes and my new girlfriend, why are you not doing that? You know, and all that stuff. <laughs> it was very interesting. Years afterwards, I'd meet these guys in the streets and they'd always remind me how hysterical I was in in taking the piss out of them. But anyway, as I was leaving, the woman who had organised it said, said, what did you do with your low self-esteem? I said, what do you mean? He said, well... Most of the guys in here have got low self-esteem. I said, I've got the opposite. I've got high, I've got too much self-esteem. I said, it's, it's come out of my mouth and my ears. I can't do anything about it. So I always have this, have always had this survivor's belief in how important I am. 
And it is, you know, some people who have been through trauma do end up thinking they're the sun, sun shines out of their derriere. Anyway, so when I went to art school, they treated me like a, a, a genius. So that was the thing that, you know, culture, reading, culture, transformed me from being a petty thief and a pain in the rear. I, when I, I remember when I was leaving, the headmaster said to me, of, of the reformatory, he said, John Bird, he said, you have to stop being the itchy ass that you have been, and you can do it. And it, he really believed in me. And he was the one who encouraged me to do my art. And I went in. Unfortunately, uh, I met a young woman in a lift and uh, I made her pregnant, not in the lift. Uh, I thought you met her at a tube station. Uh, it was, sorry? I thought you met her at Gloucester Road tube station. Yeah, we were in a lift because the, the, cause the, um, the, I was on the Piccadilly line going up and I met her in a lift at Gloucester Road tube station. And we, we became an item. And then later she got pregnant and we got married. I was a Catholic, so you always marry your pregnant girlfriends. Um, and uh, then I fell back into trouble and fell back into crime and wrongdoing. And How did that happen? Just the- Oh, just slipping in. I, I just didn't like... Well, I'd give. I'd lost my art. I'd lost my place at art school because I was always chasing her rather than chasing Van Gogh or Modigliani. <laughs> and we used to do a lot of life drawing, and I got really good at life drawing. And I would do these prints in the print department, and I'd sell them. So I found myself only going in to go. You know, I wouldn't go in in the daytime to the classes. I'd just go to the evening classes and print off some of these life drawings and people love them and I sell them for a pound each so it was a kind of form of income but mainly I lived off shoplifting books and stealing things and uh were you doing it for fun or you thought no 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 I was I was trying to supply because I didn't want to go to work it was that was one thing and I had a grant which I'd give to my mother who'd spent it um so I, it was quite difficult financially being at art school, but when I'd met the woman who who we we had a child with, I just I was kind of I can't think of anything more than the fact that I was besotted with her. And you like this is how I need to this is how I can make an income. Yeah, That's so different. I would go out and she'd go to work and I'd go shoplifting. And then uh, would you sell the stuff? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Anyway, we got married, child born. Then she wrote me a little Dear John letter. She went to see her family and Dear John, goodbye. You're a pain in the ass. You you don't work. You don't do anything. All you do is sit around writing, smoking and drawing. And you're there's no future with you, which there wasn't. And then I got into trouble with the police um, again. Uh, receiving money through false pretenses, which sounds grand, but it was going into restaurants and ordering food for me and my mates. And 
than saying somebody had stolen my wallet and they'd throw you out. But eventually they got me for that. And then I did the social security. I pretended I was... Social security gave me money for my wife and daughter, but they were up in Scotland also getting social security. And that was a big crime. That was two years for Fred fiddling social security. So instead of staying around, I ran away to Paris uh, with an Irish friend of mine and I, I ran into a load of haute bourgeois Marxists. I met a very, I was 21 and I met a very beautiful 18 year old haute bourgeois Marxist who lived in a house with a grand piano and chandeliers and her father was a bourgeois bastard and she hated him and would rob him every day and give me money. Where did you meet her? I met her in the Chans, in the Saint-Germain-de-Prés. On the first night I was in Paris, I was with my, I was with this Irish friend and we met some street drinkers. So they were playing their penny whistle and we started dancing. And immediately there was loads of people and they were throwing money at us and all that. And we were drinking these... Um, Sons of Brie, these homeless people's wine and having a wonderful time. And they'd never had so much money, they said. And then these haute bourgeois came along and one of them said, you piece of shit, you scumbag, you go back to England, you leave our poor people alone. So we slagged them off. And then three days later, met them by chance and we became the girl and I uh, became an item, you know. So, backing up a sec, were you devastated when your wife left? Your child? For a while. Because then it was swinging 60s. This was 1967. And there was so much sex and drugs and rock and roll. It was just unbelievable. Wall to wall. What kind of drugs? Everything. Anything. Uh... Well, there was a lot of amphetamines. There was a lot of uh, uh, dr- there was a lot of um, what do you call it, uh, marijuana. There was a lot of heroin around. There was uh, cocaine. I remember. There were. I don't even. You know, there was trips. I had loads of trips. I stopped doing trips because uh, uh, it, it, you've got to have a pretty sta- stable personality to take it. LSD, and I didn't have it, and I'd, I'd get ferociously, you know, I'd become ferocious. I destroyed a phone box, uh, do things like that. Fortunately, I didn't hit anybody, but I did weird things and walked on roofs, and and, I, and then there was a life was just one long party, and uh, there was loads of, um, you know, there was just loads of. There seemed to be loads of people around who just wanted to kick over the traces, forget the Second World War or what it was. And, you know, sex was everywhere. So I was, I was just, thought I just went along with it. And how did you... But, but I realised, and it might have been my lingering Catholicism, I thought, this isn't for real, this is, I don't like this. I didn't really... You know, I was interested in people. I wasn't interested in in what this pop culture. I really, and I hated the Beatles, which also helped. And I hated the Rolling Stones, and I hated all pop music. And I was into jazz, and 
So I, I, I was even an awkward sod then. And how did you get to Paris? I just uh, just got on the tra- got on the train. Uh, I'd I'd sold the contents of the flat that I was living in, even though I didn't own the contents of the flat I was living in. Uh, and they gave me seventy quid, and I went off to Paris. And I took this Irish mate of mine with me, who was a homeless guy. And we uh, went off to Paris. And uh, did you have passports, or you didn't need? Yeah, them? well. In those days, what's so beautiful, which was beautiful then, if you took 10 shillings, a birth certificate, and went to the post office, they made up a a temporary passport, which was for a year. And my mate, who was Irish, uh, went as my elder brother, Patrick Finbar Bird, because he didn't have a birth certificate. So I went to my mum's house. And uh, in, in most working class houses then, you could always get into a working class house because you put your hand through the letterbox and there'd be a bit of string and one key and you'd pull it in and you'd open the door. And my mum and dad and brothers were not there. So I went and got, and I knew where the birth certificates were, so I took my birth certificate and I took my older brother's birth certificate and we went. So Patrick Finbar Bird, who'd never been out of England, uh, went to Paris with me. And then we met these haute bourgeois Marxists, upper class Marxists, with money coming out of there, everywhere. Um, and then, um, and, that- and, and then, and then what happened was, I was there and I thought I'm going to stay here, because the police wanted me for four or five things. And then I used to drink about a bottle of whiskey a day. And my Irish friend paid his way by going out stealing a bottle of whiskey for him and a bottle of whiskey for me. And unfortunately, after a few days, he didn't really understand cameras and... Not cameras, mirrors. And they'd locked the door. And he and then the, the uh, police arrived and broke his finger and arrested him and stuck him in friend prison and then deported him. Uh, and... It was strange to port because they didn't take him to the court. They said, get out. You've got three days to get to the, to Ostend or no, Boulogne or whatever. And you'll never be allowed back in England, uh, in France. Uh, so they banned him. And I saw him. I was on the Champs-Élysées. What had happened was the night he got arrested, the, uh, the police rang up. The, the the little cheap hotel we were in and said and the woman came to me and said uh, the police are coming to see you uh, you better go because they've arrested your friend for shoplifting so I ran away took packed my stuff and then went down the Champs-Élysées where I'd met this Indian guy selling uh, the London strip the London Evening Standard which was sold on the Champs-Élysées, it was flown in and sold that day's paper. And he was selling them. And I talked to him and I said, oh, I've got to disappear. And they said, oh, he said, well, you can move in with my sister and me uh, in uh, Anvers, which was up near Babes Rochessois, which was a very rough part of Paris, very black and Indian. He was an Indian guy. And so I moved in with him and he let me sleep on his kitchen floor 
uh, and I was there about four months or something like that, and that's and then my girlfriend and I would meet there and do you know, uh, and then when we were talking about the crisis because of the kind of thinking that I came from, you know, you know, black people are inferior, Jews are inferior, Indians are inferior, English people are inferior. Protestants. Yeah, we were Catholic, so everybody, Protestants, all Protestants should be shot. You know, so I had all of that kind of rubbish, that kind of underclass hatred, racist stuff. And my friend Katia just, cause she, she just, you know, kind of beat it out of me. And after a few months, I became a revolutionary Marxist and have been an internationalist and an anti-racist and all the stuff ever since. So she converted me. But you drop, you since dropped the Marxism. Well, the problem is, Marxism changed so much uh, that it almost became simply, you know, if you were pissed off with the system, you could be a Marxist, and you didn't necessarily have to do anything. And I was, I think I was, I come from a very long line of quite practical people. I went through an impractical stage. Uh, and I got I got rid of my classism. So I, did, I got rid of my class hatred. And then I got rid of my disdain for the system because I thought I've got to make the system work for the people that I come from. And as I come from people who are drinkers and you know homeless rough you know rough um, rough sleepers and all that so yeah so I so my Catholicism went on the back burner and my Marxism uh, went on the back burner and I turned into a different kind of person and so what did you do between then and starting the big issue which was 1991 right yeah well this was 67 I came back from I came back from Paris at the end of 67 and I went uh, I went up to Scotland to uh, uh, to to see my wife because she was living up there with the baby and she wouldn't even open the door Uh, and there'd been so many you know I mean, there was loads of stuff, like I'd buy stuff and wouldn't pay for it and all that stuff. So the police were at her little middle-class home because her parents were middle-class. She wouldn't let me in. She gave me £30 and said, just go away. I don't want to see you. I said, so when can I come back? She said, at the end of the century. So she gave me £30. It was about a pound a year to keep away. And I went into Edinburgh... uh, went to a pub that I knew and met some people and immediately fell into the kind of underclass, you know, druggy, you know, partying. So I joined, so while I was there, uh, I then got a number of girlfriends uh, and it was I was, um, you know, kind of getting a fed here and sleeping there and all that. So it was opportunism. And then uh, on just a few days after Christmas in 1967, I met this Scotsman in the pub who um, we became mates. 
he was an incredibly atrocious poet and I was writing incredibly atrocious poetry as well. So we united on, he'd read his shit to me and I'd read my shit to him. And he'd say, <laughs> it was appalling, I'm not joking. Anyway, uh, we became mates and he was the guy who I didn't see for, uh, I saw him for about a year, then I didn't see him for 20 years and he was the one that gave me the money to start the big issue. Gordon Roddick. Gordon Roddick. So I... Um, Whose wife, Anita, yeah. the late Anita, was later Anita, yeah. body shop founder. Yeah. So body, Gordon, Anita founded the body shop and then Gordon was away and he came back and kind of turned it into a business and, you know, franchises and all that and helped to grow. So he'd, I'd seen him... So I hadn't seen him for 20 years. My 20 years was, his 20 years were spent doing all sorts of things and then founding the body shop in the middle of the 70s. And what I did was I joined this revolutionary party to destroy capitalism. And uh, In the UK? In the UK. How in, did you avoid your social security or the... Oh, well, I, I, just, I just became... Uh, I just... Um, did emergency tax, so I'd go and I'd work. In in those days, I don't know if it's the same now, you know, you could work for a year on emergency tax. And, you know, I'd give, I had all sorts of names. I, I, in fact, I can't even remember the names. I mean, it was, the problem was I kept changing the names and I'd, I'd get a job. So I came back to London from Scotland in 68 and I got a job washing up and they don't give a shit, you know in a restaurant, you know. And then I got another job as a forklift truck driver. I got another job putting up fences and digging holes in building sites. And I was on the casual, as they called it. And uh, and then, but then I got a factory job because I, was, I joined this revolutionary group and they wanted me to go into the factory to convert people to the revolution. So I went and worked for British Leyland, which was a big industrial com company owned by the the British government. I mean, it was owned by the taxpayer. And I was in there, uh, and then I got sacked from there from, I think, fighting or being a pain in the arse or something. And then I went to another job and all that. And I spent nine months in this revolutionary group, and then I thought, listen, for me, I just can't stand the... It was all largely middle-class people who weren't loved by mum and dad, they seemed very, very disturbed and very religious, but without the Catholicism. Uh, and... Chardonnay socialist type. No, they weren't. They weren't. These people were... They came, the public school, grammar school, university graduates, but they were... They were almost like kind of Maoists, you know, they were just dedicated to everything. You gave the whole of it. They weren't Chardonnay. They, they, there was no luxury to this. They, You got up in the morning at five o'clock and you went out selling papers out, outside factories and then you went to work and you worked all day. And most of them, uh, I was, there was a, not many working class people like me. They were mainly middle class. So they had jobs like working for the local authority and, I don't know, accounts or they were teachers or they lectured and all that stuff. There's a big class division within the the, the socialist movement, the socialist 
socialist labor labor league as it was called and um so i was there but i couldn't take their moralizing i couldn't i just like i hate moralists i hate people who define themselves by the failures of others that's it's exactly how it is now don't you think oh yeah we haven't moved on we still we still live in a world where people define themselves by the failures of others. But what I did was, I, I then, at the end of 68, 69, I met a, a young girl. I mean, I, I was like five years, six years older than her. She was like just leaving school and I was 22, 23. And uh, she became my girlfriend. She was upper class, upper middle class came from a very good family and they had money and I kind of attached myself to them while the police were looking for me and all that. And then after about five years, uh, I went to the police and sorted that out and went to the social security and sorted that out and then became a printer because I taught myself how to print by getting jobs and doing courses. And uh, so I piggybacked off of the upper middle classes uh, they didn't particularly like it, but uh, I th- my father-in-law didn't think an awful lot of me. Uh, and my mother-in-law was, she was kind of interested because she could see that I was incredibly bright and clever and actually quite useful. And then I uh, was working as a printer and then there came a stage and I thought, I'm going to start my own business. And I started my own business in 1978 the the last job I did, my take home pay was thirty pounds a week. So that was three that's hundred and twenty pounds a month. The first month I started my business, I didn't earn anything because I was buying a machine and building um uh, building a, a workshop in the back of the house that my wife's family had helped us buy. Where was that? That was in Acton in West London. And I, uh, but the second month, because I was a devoted printer and because I worked every hour that God sent through them and I was good at, um, I was I was good at um, processing work and people loved me. I, I was, I had so many people just loved working with me. And in the first month I made a profit of 800 pounds. So I'd gone from 30 pounds a week to 800, and that was a lot of money. And then I just went like that, and I became a very prosperous, not, I mean, small beer. I mean, I never earned more than, I don't know, probably 20,000 pounds a year, but it was a lot. And it was just at the stage that Margaret Thatcher was coming in. So I was a kind of Thatcher child, you know, a child of, you know, underclass. I, in fact, the first, the first uh, time I voted in my life was voting against Margaret Thatcher in 1979 because I'd been hiding up till then. Um, so um, then I really, you know, when you run a business, you learn so much. I mean, not just the psychology of how do you deal with people, but how do you buy stuff? How do you make sure you don't run out? How do you make sure you get it delivered? Then I started magazines for people. I started a magazine. 
I did work with the Royal Academy. I did work for big one of the biggest airlines in the world, which was Pan American Airways, which is not with us anymore. I did work for them. I did work for the Royal Albert Hall. I did work for the Festival Hall. And I did all this stuff. And then I started magazines for the Tate Gallery. And I was rushing around like a blue-ass fly. Uh, and that went on for about five years. And then I realised that so many people owed me money. And if you didn't go and demand it, you wouldn't get it. So I, I did a job for a roofing company where I was producing like a million leaflets a month and they were leaving them everywhere all over the place and they got me to do this job and uh, they didn't pay me so I I was I drove up to the workshop to the office and there was all these builders all these roofers sitting around drinking smoking and I walked in and they said what are you fucking one I said I want your fucking governor I said, he owes me money. And they said, he's in there. So I went in and demanded the cash. And he gave me 800 quid, which was why. And I walked out and I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm sick of being screwed around by people who treat, um, they treat printers as though they're prostitutes. You just use them and you throw them away. And I then decided... I would do something and I published a magazine and then the magazine wasn't making any money for the first couple of years it was an art magazine and at that time it coincided with this the bloke who had put the money up decided to to get out so it was he turned it into a tax loss so it cost £90,000 for three years and by the time he'd um He'd written it off against tax. It was £18,000. And he divided that amongst me, the editor, and him. It was my magazine. I'd started it. I'd sold all the ads. I did all the printing, did all the distribution and all that stuff. I did everything. And I said, I'm not paying you because you came in with the money. He came in as the editor. I came. I did everything else. So, you know, screw you. So he was going to come after me. And I thought, what can I do? So I became a student. Uh, which, as you know, is a good place to hide. So I, I went along to my local um, college, which was in Ely, Ealing, and I applied and showed them some of the stuff that I'd done, I'd written, because I used to write for these art magazines. And they let me in, and I became a student, a mature student at the age of 37. Uh, 1983, and it was... It was a dream. I loved it. I loved. I loved hearing. I loved sitting in a classroom, uh, listening to music, because yeah, I did music. I did music. I did literature. I did uh, urban studies, listening to Sibelius and all that stuff, and people talking about it. I thought this is. I thought this is what everybody lacks. You know, you need time to just kind of sit down and get into culture. And um, so then I, after, the, after I'd done the, um, the course, uh, the three years, oh. I then was given jobs teaching, because I got, a, I got um, um, a two-two. So I was, um, 
So I was an educated geezer with a piece of paper and I was 40. And I was writing these plays as well. I was writing these plays and putting them on at the Edinburgh Festival and all that. And I was quite successful. So I was a happening guy. But I thought to myself, I've been through everything. You know, I've been through, you know, kind of Catholicism and racism and, 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 and Marxism. And I thought that I've got to find something I can do that kind of encapsulates all of these struggles. And uh, just about that time, I met Gordon, re-met Gordon Ruddick. Well, I didn't re-meet him. I saw him on the telly, television. He was launching a, uh, a condom company called Mates uh, with Richard Branson and, and, and uh, Anita Roddick. And I went to see him and he said, oh, did you see the Mates? And I said, yeah. I said, <laughs> he said, yes. I said, well, I, I think it's, I think you've created something wonderful. You've created a condom company for people who don't like sex. And he said, you cheeky bastard. And from then on, it kind of broke the ice. And he knew that my humour was still, because he loved my humour. And then, a few years later, he was in New York, saw a street paper being sold, spoke to the guy. This was 1990. And, uh, and uh, saw the guy selling this paper called Street News and he said, how does it work? He said, well, I buy it for 50 cents and I sell it to you for a dollar. So I'm, and he said, why are you doing this? Well, I come from Brownsville, which is in, uh, in you know, near the Bronx and uh, you don't get out of there without a prison sentence or unless you're Mike Tyson and you become a boxer. And Gordon thought it was beautiful and came back and got the Body Shop Foundation to look for someone to do it. And then about a year later, having not found anybody who took any interest in it, and they all said the same thing. Why would you give homeless people the chance of selling a paper in England when all they'll do is drink it or, or put it in their arms or up their noses or whatever? And Gordon eventually talked me into doing a feasibility study and I spoke to a lot of people a lot of homeless people and um, I mean a lot of them told me to piss off uh, but I spoke to them and quite a number of them said if you start a street paper I'll sell it anything's better than begging so eventually I threw my lot in with him and uh, I discussed that it would not be a charity there was no way I was going to run it as a charity I would not be told what to do by anybody, especially, you know, uh, uh, what do you call them? Uh, trustees. I mean, trustees are people who live or work in the city. The city is full of people who are trustees or they're teachers or they're all these people. I didn't want to go anywhere near those. I didn't want any of the great and the good. I didn't want any of the bleeding heart liberals. I didn't want any of them telling me anything because one thing I realized, I did not have one sentimental bone in my body for the poor. And all these out there were so sentimentally attached. They'd do all their businesses. They'd be very businesslike. They'd make their money. And then in the evening, they'd put on a silly red nose and go around, <laughs> how can we be stupid uh, and support and give handouts to people? And I was, and I still am, totally opposed uh, 
I say help people when they need it, but help them to not need it. And that's a hand up, not hand up. Amazing. (laughs) You're boring the arts on me, getting me to talk about myself. I'm boring you. Sorry. I'm joking. Um, Okay, can you explain what the big issue is for Pete, for any Americans? Because this is so, this is what I thought when I lived in New York and saw all these people on the street, right? And I was like, why don't they have something like they do in London and they have it in Melbourne, the big issue, where people have an opportunity to work on the street? Like, what a brilliant idea. So, yeah. I mean, so it's odd to me that there was a... Yeah, the the idea actually came from New York. We stole the idea from America. I mean, um, so the the Street News was started in 1989 or something like that. And when Gordon saw it in 1990, it was on an ascendancy, of incredible ascendancy. And then it fell. And by the time we started the big issue, in imitation of it, uh, they really they lost it and the principal reason I think was because it was largely a pity purchase it was something that you bought and you didn't read it because it was full of harrowing stories about poverty and I think most people in in most people who buy the big issue like a bit of balance they like a story they like a bit of harrowing they like you know less you know the people who get out of the you know, who through the reversal of fortune uh, eventually get out of it and build their own lives. So I think what happened was their paper was just uh, full of these, it was like opening a page and going, ah, ah, and then you open another, ah, 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 and I think people just get cheesed off with that. So we always said that this was a this was a publication sold by homeless people. So it was called The Big Issue because everyone has a big issue. There are people who have sexual problems, you know, like um, there was an enormous amount of young people on the streets who had declared to their families that they were gay and they were thrown out. So that their big issue was their sexuality. There were people who were suffering racism there were people who were suffering from domestic violence. There were people who had been in the armed forces and had been traumatised. There were people who were hiding from uh, psychological damage done in their church. So, so, so we didn't. It, so homelessness was only the presenting problem. So why would you start a magazine just for homeless people? You'd start a magazine for you, me, and everybody else. Because what you were doing is you were saying, we're all in the sticky stuff and we've all got to find a way of working together. So it was a, it was a communal effort. And one of the striking things about the big issue, and I've been praised by so many people, they say, how the hell, John, have you managed to have all these vendors who, you know, are upbeat and, you know, and they, they, they seem to be so positive even if they're down? And I say, well, that's not me. It's just I've got thousands and thousands of self-appointed psychiatrists or psychologists who, who 
who are readers, who talk to our vendors and treat them as human beings. Because when you, I was a beggar, and I can tell you, the one thing you do when you're begging is you have to, your USP is the fact that you're desperate. So somebody comes up and you say, oh, excuse me, love. Uh, I mean, I was begging when I was 10 or 11, and I would be saying, oh, excuse me, could you give me some money because my mum's in an iron lung and my dad's just died. And I'd kill my mum and dad every day. And so you would never, but with a big issue vendor, you can talk to them, you find out where they come from, how they've come, and they'll ask you questions and they will help your well-being as much as you're helping theirs. And we all need a touch of well-beingness now. Every, I don't need, I don't know anybody today who doesn't say I could do with a top-up of love, tenderness, kindness, thoughtfulness, we all need it because the world is just so, you know, the spinning plates are, are, are just all over the place and people are worried about the environment, they're worried about poverty, they're worried about whether they can pay their rent, they're worried about how their children are going to get through the college or the university. And I mean, uh, I've never known a period of time when so many people are, are having to balance uh, things and I'm astonished that the government and the charities and all the people who are we're not we're not actually attacking the biggest monster of today which is well-being for all of us and and mental health mental well-being I mean I know so many people um, who 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 cannot really manage and they and this is across all sections of society it's not a class issue now because some of the most desperate people are the people who come from plenty, who come from comfort and all that. But comfort is not enough. Mm. They need they need a top up in in their own sense of their own importance and their own, you know, individual usefulness. You know. And so, what what's the business model? How do you how do you recruit the vendors? The, the vendors normally come to us, they recruit, we, um, they work through, you know, they come to our, we've got offices all over the place. Uh, and we work, with, so we work with people who, who, are, who are homeless. We work with ex-homeless people and we work with the vulnerably accommodated. And that is the most, that's the biggest increase it's people who, if you don't give them the chance of making some extra money, they wouldn't be able to pay their rent. And they might be on social security, they might be, on, you know, on a, you know, working poor. So, so there are people who desperately need uh, that. We also work with people who, who want the kindness and generosity that comes, when it comes. Not everybody buys the paper, but I know quite a number of big issue vendors who say the money's good but it's the contact with somebody somebody and they've got their regulars mm. uh, and uh, they fall in love with a sense of their own redemption and I think that is really important the business model is that we we sell the paper now it's four pounds a copy uh, it used to be started off at fifty pence a copy thirty two years ago, and it's kind of kept level with inflation over the years. It costs four pounds, 
they buy it for £2 and we get £2. Uh, and there is no, no, there's no dividends paid. I'm, I'm the kind of shareholder and I get a wage. I don't get, so we, we, if we make surpluses, they go into our work. So it's a bit like a, it, it, it is a social business and it's a bit like a charity in a way, but it's not a charity because if it was formulated at a charity, it would be done in a different way. So we have, you know, the board of directors, we have uh, management and we have, you know, all that stuff. And we have people who, uh, who are accountants, people who are, you know, selling advertising, people who are working directly with the homeless. And we have people who um, um, do uh, promotions and press and so we are a proper business. And also we have, as well as the big issue, we have this <clears throat> enormously big uh, social uh, investment business called Big Issue Invest. And that is, I mean, that's, that's enormous. I mean, it, ha it, it, and that is investing in social businesses to bring about social change and to prevent homelessness and prevent crime and prevent things like that. And that has invested over the last 11 years in about 540 different social businesses all over the UK. So the vendors, they get £2 per copy they sell. And yeah. that, so it's up to them when they work. And Yeah, we have, increasingly, we have to ask them to be in specific places at specific time because it because the streets are not like they used to be pre-COVID. They're not like um, they were even pre-2008. And they're not like what they were like pre-9-11. Because every one of those things have knocked our business and reduced us and therefore we have to struggle. So now, I mean, we don't sell... At our height, we were selling, I don't know, 100,000 copies a week. And now we probably sell about... 50. So it's a different model. That's why the magazine itself is more expensive than it. I mean, we could have kept it at a price if more and more people sell it. The other thing is that the government, this is my big, one of my big bugbearers, the government has invested a lot of money in, in a sense, giving people reasons to not work, to, to not, you know, they've, you know, there's lots of people on social security. They don't, you know, their rent is paid for, their daily needs are not always adequately, but there's taken, there's kind of, when we first started, there was a ferocious need for thousands of people to earn money because there was nothing on offer from the government. And now the government is increasingly, I mean, they they think they're doing their our job for us. But we're here about a hand up, not a hand. We're about you earning your own money, not relying on people to give you a hand up. And that is a very important thing. That, what I'm trying to do is, you know, if you don't go to work, you know, no one's going to give you anything. You might get a bit of social security, but you're not, you're not going to be giving, you're not going to be getting the things that you could when you work that you get if you're on social security. So I, I want to, I want to get everybody out of poverty. I want to get them out of 
need and I want to get them away as far as possible from dependency so their children don't become another generation of the poor. And for the people who you've seen who have, because you've had tens of thousands of people mm. come through the as mm. vendors, right? For the people who you've seen who have broken the cycle of poverty, are there similar themes? Yeah, I mean, I would say the biggest part of the big issue has been to, uh, you know, to give people the chance of making that change in their lives. And we've tried to support them. Sometimes we haven't supported them well enough or adequately enough. I would say that the biggest thing that the big issue has done is to enable people to kind of sort their own lives out. So it's a bit like, you know, you're you're a bit lost and you're a bit short of money and you get a job and you earn a certain amount of money and you say, well, I've got problems with my relationship, I've got problems with my family, I've got problems with where I live. And then you get a job and you get a bit more money and you feel... And then things change. Oh, well, I've got a bit more money so I can move or, you know, I'm not so stressed so I'm getting on better with my family and I feel actually quite better. So actually getting a job and earning your own money is is a tonic to many, many people. It's not always because a lot of people don't want to do a job that they don't want to do. But there are, there are you know, I mean, most of the jobs I've done I never particularly wanted to do but it gave me the freedom to do things that I could do. So I, I could go to, I could go, I go to life drawing classes. Well, I was paying for my life drawing classes out of what I earned because no one was going to give me the money to do what I wanted. And often I had a job that I didn't want. So, um, and I think there is a kind of problem I think today, which is the fact that everybody wants the job they want. And they don't realise that sometimes you've got to do a job until the job that you want to do. I mean, there was a, quite a few years ago, there was, a, there was this thing about this woman took the government to court because she'd, um, uh, she'd left university with, I think, a top degree and she couldn't get a job where she wanted. And she was offered a job working in Poundland you know, um, um, you know, one of these, pay, um, what do you call them, uh, cheap shops, you know, everything's a quid or something like that. And uh, so she was offered that and she wouldn't take it. So they said, well, you know, we went, why would we support you or something like that? So there was a court case and I was asked, what did I think about this? I said, well, look, if I got two letters for somebody wanting a job and one of the letters said, Dear Mr. Bird, I'd love to, um, have you got a job that, you know, that I, these are my skills and all that. Uh, at the moment, I'm looking for a job uh, because uh, I need to get the kind of job that is backed by my education and the amount of time I put into it. I'd look at that letter. I don't know what I'd make of that. But if I got another letter that said, Dear Mr. Bird, uh, you know, I'm looking for a job. If you've got a job in these areas, these are my skills and that. In the meanwhile... I'm working in a pound land because I think it's important for me to get up early in the morning, go off to work and earn a bit of my own money uh, and I will get skilled. I'd, I'd jump on that person. I'd say here is a person who 
uh, is not waiting around for the ideal opportunity. They're going to make their opportunities. And it's astonishing the amount of people in the world who start off cleaning, doing the, the ship jobs. Uh, and they're, they're not saying, you know, they're not waiting around for the ideal job. And I think that the people who are waiting around for the ideal job often never find the ideal job because they're not creating the appetite to get on. And that kind of self-help message is, is you know, it's not, it's not the same for everyone. You can't, you can't say everybody's got to be self-help. But we should be encouraging as many people as possible to kind of, well, get off their arse. And so I, 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 um, I fell out with a lot of people over that argument about this. Oh no, she'd been, I think, I said, well, who the fuck are you, you know? Who the fuck are you? I was, you know, uh, you know, and and we've got so many problems now uh, around people not wanting to do jobs that are demeaning. And I think doing a demeaning job is often the road to your own personal success. I know I've done I've done everything. You know, I haven't washed bodies, but I've taken bodies from one place to another in a hospital as a, a porter. I've cleaned toilets. I've dug rubbish out of toilets. I've done, got down holes and dug them and laid concrete and done all sorts of terrible jobs. Put up fences at four o'clock in the morning when there's rain and, and all that stuff. And I think we need to, to kind of rekindle the fact that, you know, if you really want to do things then get your hands dirty and get get you know do the things that that will give you a bit of money and if you're still doing it in a couple of years time then you're you're in a you're in a a dead end and then you have to really start leaping around then you've got to start reskilling yourself then but don't demean the fact that those jobs which are incredibly essential you know, uh, over COVID, we fell in love with van drivers, you know, because they delivered to us. I've been a van driver and I've never, no one ever clapped for me when I delivered anything. But I knew that if there were no van drivers in COVID, we would be screwed. And if there weren't people still going in and unblocking the drains, we would be screwed. If we, if, if we walked down the road and the drains block, blocked, uh, that can lead to all sorts of health issues and it can lead to all sorts of things. We need sanitary engineers, we need cleaners up, we need all sorts of things. Yeah. Rubbish collectors. Rubbish collectors. I mean, some of the most divine work I ever saw done with those people who got on the train when the train pulled into the station and I was going to the House of Lords because I was trying, I went in wearing my mask, you know, doing all the right things. And they'd get in and they'd be cleaning everything before you got on. And often I would, in a train for a thousand people, there might only be 10 of us or 20 of us. And I looked at these people and I thought, God above, they're, they're here for us. And, uh, you know, so, you know, whatever you do is, is useful to the world anyway. So how do you think we can help the people who are on the street or who are in 
vulnerable situations who don't want to work? Well, I mean... Or they can't. You, well, I mean, there's a lot of people who are mentally unable to work, and I know a lot of them, and I, I've been to tribunals with people who have been, um, what do you call it, um, written off as, as uh, physically impaired, you know, work, um, disabled or whatever. And um, I've been there and I've told them, I said, look, you know, I wouldn't give this guy a job because he doesn't have the skills or the abilities or a particular young woman I knew. She couldn't do it. So we have to support those. But we have to take the able-bodied out of the equation. And unfortunately, we're not doing that particularly well. We need the able-bodied doing the job. We all need now to pull together to get out of the crisis of, you know, inflation and all that. But the people who really can't help themselves have to have more help rather than less help. And I think there are jobs to be done that to be created around care because care is an enormous... It's a big industry coming down. It's not just old folks like me that you need to help. It's also young people, people who are having trouble at school, people who are dyslexic or on some scale and all that. We're always learning about these people and we need to support them. We need to support our schools. We need more people supporting uh, the fundraising for local authorities and, and charities and schools. We need an enormous turnaround. And actually, COVID showed that we could work together collectively and in a cooperative manner. And I think that's to be shown. I mean, the NHS, I, I'm astonished at how much sweat and blood and tears have gone into the NHS. Uh, and it, the great tragedy is that when what looked like the end of the pandemic, they were not suitably awarded for what they did. And I think the government uh, had made an enormously ridiculous uh, assessment of the full cost. The full cost of, of not paying the NHS a, a better wage is that it it causes problems for all of us because we all become a little, le a little more unsure of our place in the world because there's an NHS that's on strike there's teachers on strike, there's local authorities on strike, there's trains on... And, and it's all and it all makes us feel, you know, the world's wobbly. It's like its foundations have been undone. Okay, last question. Yeah. Do you feel like you're making good progress now that you're in the House of Lords working on breaking poverty cycles? Um... Well, first of all, the House of Lords and the Commons are full of people who are in love with the idea of making the poor as comfortable as possible, which is why I'm not there. When I, when I went into the House of Lords, they all loved me because they knew the paper, they knew me. I was a kind of, oh, the celeb celebrity on television. They made a programme about us immediately when we went in, the BBC. And, and they thought, oh, yeah. So they all come up and they started telling me about in their constituency or in their area, there was uh, people who had this problem and that problem. And there were 
people sleeping here and all that. And they're all going on about the emergency. And they were trying to get me behind it. And I said, look, I said, you carry on doing your emergency stuff. You carry on rushing. I can't do yours, you know, in Liverpool one day and in the, later on in the day in Southampton and up in Scotland and all that. I'm, I'm not here. I can't do that. I'm here to dismantle poverty. That means getting rid of the emergency. So I tried, I've tried with a couple of bills, one that has gone through to kind of nuance the system. One of them is that went through, it was uh, Simon Fell, who is a conservative MP for Barrow and Furness. I took his bill through the House of, Com House of Lords. So it became law. And, you know, I've worked with him and we're working on another bill. And that was a bill to, to outlaw that if you didn't have anywhere to go and you were leaving prison, then uh, you wouldn't be let out on a Friday. Because if you go out on a Friday, then what happens? On Friday, there is no... By the time you've got to the local authority to see if you can find somewhere to live or got to the Citizens Advice Bureau, they're all closed down. Over the weekend, there is no provision. So you could fall homeless over the weekend. You could get back into crime. So that is a nuance. That's a nudge. That's a, But <coughs> that's a very, very small thing, and it's not going to change the world. We had another one, which was around credit worthiness, that if you are a renter, you have a, you have a lower credit rating than if you're a, 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 a mortgage holder. So there's a kind of class issue here. And we we went, took that bill through to really free up millions of people so that their credit rating could be raised because the credit agencies would take into account your whether you'd paid your rent on time and all that stuff. So And that didn't get on the statute books, but it led to a change in the law and it led to an investment in uh, what was called fintech solutions to helping people who have a rent record but not a mortgage letter. So all of that. Well, because they could be refused housing. No, no, no. So, so for instance, if you have a mortgage, uh, immediately you will have a higher credit rating. So you pay less for your credit than if you're in in rented accommodation. If you're in rented accommodation, it doesn't matter if you could show them 10 years of good records, it wouldn't affect your credit rating because they don't take rented accommodation as a part. They yeah, are yeah, now. Yeah, I get it. But what are you, why are you pushing for that? So people have better access to credit cards or loans for what? Yeah, purpose? so that they don't have to pay that so much for their credit. So that, for instance, they can buy things like a lot of people and pay for it gradually because they're not uh, their credit. They're not paying over the top for for the credit um, uh, for because they've got a low credit score. So it's a new. It's so a, don't it, we want people ideally not using credit? Because then that. Well, I I I think you've got to talk to the Bank of England. You've got to talk to Unilever. You've got to talk to to uh, Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett does everything on credit. You know when Warren Buffett bought uh, bought uh, Cadbury's Kraft. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, of course. Sorry. Yeah, so, I work at a. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you, it's so interesting. I open my Financial Times, and there is an enormous page thing, and it says, and it's it's the uh, um, it's General Electric, GE Finance, thanking thanking Warren Buffett and Hathaway Holmes or whatever it is thanking them for allowing them to give them the money to buy uh, to buy uh, Mondeleuze as it is now called to buy buy Cadbury's and buy Kraft now if you're saying to me that we should not use credit I we are sitting in a house now that if I did not have credit I wouldn't I, be saying that. I am as someone who works in finance I'm not saying that that it's also how the big issue was made, right? It was from the money came from the body shop, right? This is not like business loans are important, home loans are important, of course. Buying your groceries on credit or paying rent on credit, it's like you we want people to be able to pay for the basics so they're not trapped in debt because that's what keeps people poor as well, right? When they're just paying down debt constantly and they yeah. But you would never, you I would never recommend to anybody to pay your rent on credit. Nor would I say. But I would say that if you want to buy a new refrigerator and you can't afford it, uh, and the refrigerator is an essential part of your life, or a cooker, which is an essential part of your life, if you've got a very low credit score, then what it means is out of your weekly income or monthly income you have to apportion a bigger thing for the buying of, of, of goods and all that. I certainly, uh, I, but, but the important thing is, and this is, if you actually have a high credit score, which reflects the fact that you have paid your rent regularly, then actually that is a psychological boost as well, because it means that people trust you. You yeah. feel uh, very much a part of the world that we live in. Uh, and you're not, you know, in a kind of little uh, adjunct of, of capitalism. So that's interesting. But at, so this credit worthiness bill was really about freeing up those people who then didn't have to apportion a bigger part of their monthly income into the paying the over the top because they couldn't afford... Uh, they could. They they had to buy a fridge uh, instead of five percent. They were paying ten or fifteen yeah, percent. Yeah. And also, you've got to realise that the people who don't have credit, who can't get credit, what happens to them? They go to the payday loan people. They go to the and and they'll get it anyway. They'll get the product. Uh, the tragedy of the tragedy of people paying for credit, that are paying for their rent on credit. That is a totally different credit. Most people don't do that. Yeah, but that, I mean, I guess Sorry, that. Sorry, darling, can I have a drop of water, please? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's okay. We're almost there. We're almost yeah. there. I guess that goes back to your parents though, right? And the importance of financial literacy and to Mm. know like you do need money for emergency emergencies will happen the fridge will break something will go wrong something will get stolen and people need money set aside but a lot of people 
I guess, just aren't prepared for that. Yeah. Because ideally, you don't have to deal with emergencies on credit either, like a fridge breaking. Mm. Mm. But if you're going to end up to be able to pay um, for your own fridge when it breaks down, uh, one of the incremental ways is that you save. And one of the ways of saving is not spending. And one of the ways of not spending is to get a bloody good credit waiting so that when you do have to spend, you're not spending as much as you were. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we went through this and it was... Uh, so anyway, so you asked me a question, the final question where you said, what am I... What I'm doing now, everything I'm doing needs a seismic change. Seismic changes don't come by simply accumulating experiences and what. So all of the little things I've been doing, like trying to protect people, one of the big things we did, which is not as little as you'd think it was, it, as, as, as I'm suggesting in a way, but what we did over COVID in 2020, when we established that there were going to be about 300,000 people who were going to be made homeless and evicted because they lost their jobs through through uh, COVID. And we got the government to eventually, after two years of campaigning, to allocate uh, a certain amount of money to the government, to the public, 650 million pounds. It didn't come to us, went to local authorities. So all we were were the social brokers of that. We said to the government, don't go, don't be silly, don't hide your sand, head in the sand. Because any one of these persons, if they if they fall homeless with their children, the costs will be double. What it is is if you pay for their rent to just keep them or their mortgage to keep them in their home. The interesting thing was, and this is where I came to my next uh, um, change in direction. The interesting thing was the government put in the six hundred and forty million pounds over a couple of months through different allocations of money and what the what did they do then they didn't keep a record of how the local authorities were spending this money which was homeless prevention money so what the local authorities did they got the money and they spent it on homelessness the homeless as it was not largely the middle classes or the working poor who were going to lose their morgue, lose their houses because they couldn't pay their rent or their mortgage. So it wasn't a, so the money didn't go there. Then I realized, oh God, of course the reason for that is because the treasury is is dumb. It doesn't know where its money is going. And its KPIs are, are inadequate. You know, their key performance indicators are inadequate. And then I started thinking, oh, wow. And then I worked out, I did a rough calculation that 34%, I mean, somebody gave me some figures, and I did a 34% of what is spent on education is spent in the classroom, preventing the damage done by poverty in the classroom. And if you look at the NHS, 50% of what the NHS, according to the BMA, 50% of what it spends is on keeping the poorest amongst us as healthy as possible. 
If you look at the DWP, 90%, 80 to 90% of its money is spent on people living in poverty. You look at the social justice, you know, sorry, the, the, the justice ministry, ministry of justice, nearly 100% of it, 90% of it, is people in poverty who get involved in crime. So if you just take those and you extrapolate over the whole of the government departments, you put it all together, 40% of government spending of that trillion and one that they have every year, 40% of that, 400 billion, goes into uh, assuaging the problems caused by poverty in coping with, not preventing poverty, not curing poverty. It's like having all of these people putting them in a warehouse and saying, come back. It's like a saying, stand at the bus stop and the bus of opportunity will come and take you somewhere and the bus never arrives. So you postpone people's exit from poverty. Now this is the system. Now what I'm doing, uh, and I've got some people who are very interested in doing it, is I'm creating a ministry of poverty. So that is a poverty ministry that will help these departments to dismantle poverty. If you went to a doctor and you said, doctor, what are you doing? So, well, uh, um, this person's come in, they're, they're ill, you know. Yeah, but what are you doing about preventing them coming in, being ill? I say, fuck you. It's not my job to prevent. I'm here at the point of need, and the point of need is this person, for instance, has been eating shit all their lives and, and uh, processed food and all that, and now they've got, they've got uh, stomach problems and cancers and all that. So I'm responding to that. So well, and you say, but can't the NHS prevent it? The NHS can't prevent and can't often cure poverty. They can patch you up and give you drugs and try and keep you alive for a few more years. Nobody, so you've, ha you've got all of this. There is nobody there to seriously damage the damage caused by poverty. There's nobody there. So the Ministry of Poverty, we're building a, we're simulating a ministry of poverty and we're building it. So it's filling it up with answers from all over the world. People who have, who've got its examples. And it's, it's trying to, it's going to work and it's going to show the government how to do its budgeting. And it's going to show how you can raise the money and where you can raise the money for. I want to bring the public in to putting its investments in things like the big issue, the big issue invest, the big issue invest. You give us a, you give us your money, we will invest it, and we will bring about social change. We're going to use investment. We're going to use businesses. We're going to use charities, and we're going to show the government how this simulated thing. And it, it you know, people say, "How's it going to work?" I don't fucking know, but I'm going to go. And then whoever is in power. We're going to pass it over to them and say, this is your, this is yours. And we'll, we'll even find ways of financing it. Amazing. And to me, it is the biggest thing I've ever done. It's the craziest thing I've ever done. It's reinventing thinking. Because one thing we are no good at is thinking. And the last thing I'd like to say 
is I'm, I'm going to be publishing a book next year, hopefully. Uh, and the book is largely about history is debris. And it looks at the fact that so many things have gone wrong in history. And we spend all of our time trying to dodge them and put up with them and all that sort of stuff. History is debris. Our own lives are the history of debris. You, the person you are, whatever problems you have in your life, will be the result of things that have gone wrong, which have got nothing to do with you. You were telling me that your family went to Australia in the potato famine. That is a piece of debris that you still carry around with you. The the new the the the, uh, the 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 kind of coming out from the past. We are all. Why is it that I was an annoying? drunken piece of whatever it's because of all the things that were done to me but also done to my family done to my forebearers why is it that at the drop of a hat my greatest pleasure is to get drunk even now at the age of 77 I love nothing more than going out and having a good drink I don't not worried about food I'm not worried about anything I'm worried about not worry about I want to sit around talking to a load of arseholes and getting drunk and that is because of the the damage the collateral damage and the the debris of my life and the the inherited debris that I've got so my book which is actually called and it's based on my experience of living in Paris and meeting all these haute bourgeois it's called do you sincerely want to smash capitalism and have a full sex life and it is about these opposites and it's about the, the fact that one one thing I found my young my girlfriend wrote to me from Paris a few a few months after I left Paris and sent me some money which she'd robbed from her bourgeois father and she says Jean I have to tell you that all the time we were together I was having fantasies that I was with Jean-Paul Sartre, who was about 78 at the time and she was 18. And uh, I, I said to her, I had to write back to her and I said, it doesn't matter because while I was with you, uh, I was having fantasies that you were Gina Lollabridge there, who nobody knows about, but was an incredibly beautiful woman from the 1950s. And, and so, so my book is about the fact that we live in this imaginary life. We, our sex life, our social life, our cultural life is all this. And when I wrote my autobiography for, for Penguin 20 years ago, I said, can I bring in my imagination? Can I bring in the books that I've written? Can I bring in the books I didn't finish? Can I bring in the plays that I, can I bring in the, all the stupid things I did? And they said, no. We just want you to write about what you did. And so my book is, is challenging the way that we think. And it is a very weird book and hopefully it will uh, piss off some people and, and sell millions. Great. Okay, I lied to you. There's, there's three last quick questions. Got it. One, how do you stay grounded? I, I think it's because I'm coping with a kind of psychosis or whatever you call it. Um, I'm, I'm mentally ill. I think I'm mentally ill. I, the way I live my life is incredibly weird. 
we were having supposed to be having a meeting yesterday, an essential meeting, and I was sitting in the garden drawing a tree. That's the way I cope. Somebody said to me, a man, when I was up in Scotland, he, a man who was about 15 years younger than me, and he said, he said, John Bird, I don't understand. He said, you've got the energy of a man in his 20s or 30s. You're rushing around and you're in your 60s and your 70s. He said, how do you do it? I say, I said, the reason for that is because every now and then I get lost in the desert. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going. I'm not sure of my direction. So I go out and I wander around and then I come back and I'm, I know what I want to do. So it's about actually cutting a bit of slack in your life. I always say to people, the first person to love in this world is yourself. You can't love anybody else if you don't love yourself. If you don't love yourself, you're on a hiding. You are on a fucking hiding because you will reiterate, you'll reverberate, you will ricochet the problems of your own life. In any relationship, you will, you will pollute the relationship. I've done it. I've had relationships with people and I've thought, wow. But I've been you know, a nasty drunk or a pain in the arse or an unreliable, go out for a box of matches and come back three days later. And, and, and so you've got to fall in love with yourself. And I am so in love with myself. It's taken me a long time. And I want, I say to people, first of all, I almost feel like I want to put my hand on their head and say, I'll take my hand off your head when you've fallen in love with yourself, metaphorically. Because it's so important. If you fall in love with yourself, and that is by, by doing what I do, which I call it, uh, it's a process of, of, in, of, in, uh, of, of interrogation, self-interrogation. So you interrogate, what, what am I doing? It's like doing a permanent audit. What am I doing? Where am I going? What, what is the value of that? What, what, what's going on at work? Uh, why is that person a bit awkward with me and all that? Mm, yeah. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, what, va what value do I get out of the day? And I think if you start doing, so I do this self-interrogation. And I always, you know, I go to a film. I, my second wife, who we went to see a film about 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 55 years ago, sorry. And I, a few years ago, I said to her, do you remember that film we saw called Citizens Above Suspicion? And she said, yeah. She said, do you remember? And I started going through it and she said, how the fuck do you remember all that? And I know why, because after I came out of the film, I interrogated myself. What was this film about? Where was it going? What was the, well, what, how did the plot fit? So everything you do, if, if you fall in love with just picking up a glass of water, the fact that you can do it, because in 60 years time, you might not be able to do it, or the fact that you can go for a walk. Walking is so important. Well, I mean, I walk loads and I go on my bike and I'm going along and I'm, I'm on a hike. And, and people don't do that. Every now and then I write in the big issue and I get complaints because I say, if you've got a problem, do two, one of two things. Help somebody else with the problem. And the other thing is help yourself by going for a walk. 
go somewhere free, go to the National Gallery and look at Rembrandt or like that. Do something. Just don't and never ever hang around and and feel sorry for yourself because no one's going to feel sorry for somebody you feel sorry for themselves. They don't. They, you, I can't. If you were sitting there feeling sorry for yourself, I can't buy into it. I can offer you all the solace of a cup of tea or a glass of whiskey or something or, you know, a game of ping pong. But only you can say, I'm, I'm not going to accept this, this limitation that I place on myself. And that's how I survive. And I survive. I have periods of incredible doubt. I love them. I love it when I don't know what I'm going to do. And I don't, I mean, there was a, but a few about a year after the big issue started, we had this large team of of uh, editorial and all that, and uh, the the editor, the new editor, came rushing. He said, "John, there's this problem." Problem. She reeled out this problem. And she had all these other people come into my office, and she said, "What are we going to do, John?" And I said, "I don't know." And they said, "But if you don't know, who knows?" I said. So there's a big difference between you and me. You don't know and I don't know, but I don't give a fuck. I'm going to find it. And lo and behold, in a spirit pace of time, because I've taken the tension out of failure. The other thing is, I am incredibly good at making myself look a prick. That means I am not worried about standing up and making a fool of myself. And therefore, I will go into places where everybody's hushed because, you know, Clinton's there or something, or Blair, and I will shout out or ask them a question or something because I don't mind looking an idiot. And so many people are, are kind of, I don't want to, you know. Anyway, so it's all those kind of, yeah, I mean, when I say I'm mentally ill, I mean, I'm coping with, I'm coping with the damage that, mum and dad and coppers and teachers and arseholes and and I did to, to Johnny Bird, you know. And Johnny Bird is, you know, I'm, I I'm not there yet, but in the next few years, if the Lord allows me those years, I think I will have cracked one of the big problems. The big problem in the House of Lords, apart from the fact that they, and the Commons, the fact that they don't... Um, that they are so obsessed with keeping the poor as comfortable as possible. That, that's their mantra. The big thing is, if you go into the Lords or go anywhere, or even in society, it's like a wall. And each brick is a passion. So you get the people who are passionate about the fact that horses are treated badly, or children are treated badly, or gay people are treated badly or black people or homosexuals or whatever or transgender and they've all if you took any one of those bricks and got rid of racism or got rid of something would it affect all the other bricks would you be would you be bringing us nearer to the kind of convergent energy that we need to solve the problems of the world it wouldn't I'm sorry to say that Everything is a relative change and everybody is obsessed. You know, there's this woman comes up to me and she says, John, she said, I'm um, sorry, 
don't bang the table. <laughs> that was my first warning. Uh, she, she comes up to me and she says, John, she said, uh, I want you to help me with my publishing company because we publish for children who... And she went in and it's a really, really interesting thing. Yes. But I said, I can't help you because I don't have the, re the resources and I don't have the time because I've got to get on and do my other things. And she said, well, what are you doing? And I said, I'm trying to bring everything. I'm trying to converge the energy, concatenation, the link between everything. And this, as Parveen tells me, because she studies this, is, is what they call quantum physics. It's like the realization that every every part of you is not much different from that painting. Every part of you is a part of me, is a part of everywhere else. There's a great poet called Walt Whitman. I don't know if you know him, he wrote Leaves of Grass. It's a brilliant book. And it's about, he said, everything that is in the world, I'm a part of everything in the world, and you're a part of it. And that is it. Until we get that kind of convergent cooperativism, we're not going anywhere. And there's so many people trying to, in a way, lead us down the path towards just do this. And coming back, I mean, my Catholicism, you take it or leave it, is, is an essential part of my makeup because I feel, I have to feel I belong somewhere. I can't face the future or even look at the past without thinking, I have to feel that I belong somewhere. And actually being English or Irish or British is not enough. Because I feel I'm a citizen of the world. So I'm, you know, I've worked all over the world, started papers in in Africa and, and the Asia, Asia and North America, South America. I have to feel that. And I feel that when we wake up and we think, the problem with the world is that we don't know how to think properly. And that's what my book is about. And I answer that, I create a very weird answer to the fact that human beings don't know how to think by actually creating a body of, of spirits that do our thinking for us because we're so bad at it. And it's to demonstrate how bad the how bad our thinking is. We're we're all we're all we're not seeing we're not seeing that everything is related trial and error or whatever you call it, you know, and all this stuff. Is that... I'm so tired now. <laughs> no, I that's I mean what you're describing is what this the whole point of this podcast. So I'm just. Well, I'm hoping that uh, uh, you you do it well, and I hope it goes well. And you know, if you need us to help you promote it, then whatever. Anyway, sorry, what were you going to say? <laughs> Last two questions: Is there a book that's had a big impact on you? Uh, uh God, the book that the book that really uh, was the first book I really read, which was called Lust for Life. And Lust for Life was by a guy called, I think, Irvin Stone, who was an American. And it was uh, about the life of um, Vincent van Gogh. And I read it when I was 16. It was given to me by one of the screws in my... When he found out I was interested in art, one of the officers, he said, oh, read this. And it was about the struggles of a mentally ill man who passionately 
devoted himself to the one thing that could sort out everything in his life. And that was painting Van, Van Gogh, you know. Uh, and what was so interesting to me is that I found that that is the key to everything. So when I go to a school, uh, and a lot, I go to a lot of schools, kind of ordinary schools, they now call them academies. And they're kind of, um, you know, for working class people, people who are not going to go to the university or whatever. And I always say to them, <clears throat> until you find something to distinguish yourself by, you're not really going to go anywhere. You're just going to drift. So you might work in a warehouse, you might work in a, uh, you know, a shop, you might work on the road, you might be a driver, you might be doing... But if you actually find something to distinguish yourself, that means you know the difference between things. You almost become a kind of expert. I've had this problem with my children, uh, my elder children. They, it took them a while to find something to distinguish themselves. And it, it and it's so interesting. My son, forty-five, who, who uh, does all the kung fu and all that stuff. His point of distinction was about the making of films and documentaries. And now the whole of his life, his business and everything. And and he, he he's become a vastly richer human being because of that. And if we don't get that chance, I know other people. I've got a friend of mine who leads a pretty ordinary kind of job and now, well, he's now retired. He is a consummate, absolutely consummate crossword puzzle person and... and, and um, pub quizzes, it enriches his life so much that he's a joy to be with. He hasn't got much money, his wife's dead, uh, his children are too busy, but he is, he's got a full social life. He's a man a few years older than me. He's a joy to be with. He is not saying, oh, when am I gonna die? And I've taken him places because he just, He's a mountain of knowledge. And uh, there's a, a young boy who I knew who uh, uh, was struggling at, at finding a way. And then I pointed out to him that um, his father was an electrician. I said, is there anything you want to do in that? He said, well, I'm not really interested in electricity. I'm interested in disco lights, discos. And all. I said, we'll get into that. He now is... He got into it and he, he's, he's doing very well. And he, he does light shows now. So what started off was a little, he just want, he wanted to go down and pick up a load of girls and he loved, you know, disco lights and all that stuff. And it's become a passion for him. And he's now, I suppose now he's almost 35, 30 or something like that. And he's steadily climbed and he climbed, he, he goes to Ibiza and he doesn't go to get drunk and have sex. He goes there because there's 20 light shows that he's doing. And then he does that for, I don't know, four or five months and he comes back and he can travel around the world. He can go, he likes going out on his most motorbike and going up mountains and, and climbing mountains and all that. His life is, he found something to distinguish himself by. And if you don't, you're, you're rather cattle drugged. You know, cattle Rhyming slang for fucked, you know. Uh, and I always say to people, try and find something. My 18-year-old son, who drifts like a lot of 
the people that do their levels and all that, but their education doesn't really hit them. And he uh, has an enormous knowledge, which is encyclopedic around F1, you know, drive um, racing and football. He knows, and he knows all the managers, he knows all the teams, he knows, and I can see him using that kind of intensity of my new shy getting in the different, I, I, I can see him using that at some stage. It might not take that form, he might end up working in the city and doing it around credit or something like that. I don't know. Right, last question. Oh, what three words describe the best version of you? Curious. I'm, I don't mean I'm curious, but I mean, uh, I am curious. Uh, I'm curious, charming, and I would say confrontational. So I'm charmingly confrontational, and I'm I I am incredible. I'm mean, curious about people. I would that, sorry. One last story. I went to Par I went to Lille in northern France to write my autobiography because I couldn't write it here. And I invited two friends of mine who were villains from my old days. You know, kind of like fucking knuckles. You know, like death. You know, love and hate and all of those. And I, I and they were my mate who was driving was. Um, it got an old, an old Mercedes. I don't even know whether it had a license or anything like that. But he was a bit of a villain. This is about twenty years ago, and he's sitting in the car with my other mate, who they both met in prison, and I met them when I was coming, when I was going into prison, and they were coming out anyway, originally. And I'm sleeping in the back because I'm always tired because I've got too much to do. And uh, uh, one said to the other, he said. I wonder what Birdie's got when in in Lille. Has he got a flat? Said, yeah, he's got a flat. And he said, I wonder how he's doing. And then the other the other bloke said, he said, oh, well, I tell you what, I bet he'll have a load of people running around and he's got mates here and mates there. And I and he said, yeah. And he said, and the other one said, I wonder why he's like that. And he said, well, the difference between him and us is he, he likes people and we fucking hate them. <laughs> And I thought, you know, I meet people and I fall in love with them. I want to talk to them, I want to know. And it could be people serving in a table, it could be, you know, I mean, I just think there's something quite staggering about every human being I've ever met. And I want every human being to know that they are staggering. They are. I've never met a boring person in my life. I've met people who present themselves as boring. I've met people who, who have limited their, right down to boredom. They've made themselves as boring as anything. The only people I find boring are the people who are always after you to do something for them, but they present it in a way that it's as though you're doing things for the good of man mankind. And I, I get a bit, yeah, th those professional leeches uh, I find very difficult. And uh, I try and avoid them. Right. Well, on that positive note. Yes. There you are. Lord Bird. Thank you very much. For as we, on. I'm also known as Lord Elpus. Lord Elpus. <laughs> That's what my brother said. But I love this. It's funny that you come from Australia, but I think this comes from Tasmania.
Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, feel free to share it with someone. And also, um, a random 23-year-old just messaged me on Instagram and told me he found the podcast through the algorithm. So it actually does help if you review the podcast and subscribe or follow. And then you get to find out about future episodes as well.